Hey, my name is Josh Korak. I'm a mental health counselor in the Northern Colorado area. In this space, I get the chance to interview professionals in the field, talk about mental illness, self-care, and so much more. With this show, I ask you to join me in doing what one of my favorite philosophers, a Buddhist monk, Thich Nhat Hanh, says. Smile, breathe, and go slowly. This is Care with Korak. Welcome back to Care with Korak. This is Josh, your host. Joining me today is the wonderful Dr. Diana Hill. A little bit about her, Dr. Hill is a clinical psychologist and expert in acceptance-based and science-backed approaches to living well. In her practice, workshops, podcasts, and mentoring, Dr. Hill uses the combined tools of compassion and acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT, to help you get unstuck and live more fully. Intrigued by the intersection of brain, body, and behavior, Dr. Hill studied biopsychology, the physiology and neuroscience of behavior, as a pre-med student at the University of California at Santa Barbara. She also began practicing mindfulness and yoga to manage her struggles with anxiety and eating. Dr. Hill then pursued a PhD in clinical psychology in the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience at the University of Colorado at Boulder, and did her dissertation on appetite-focused dialectical behavioral therapy for binge eating with purging under the mentorship of Dr. Deborah Safer at the Stanford School of Medicine. She completed a year-long pre-doctoral internship in 2007 at University of California Davis Counseling and Psychological Services under the directorship of Dr. Christy Haggins. In 2008, Dr. Hill took a job as the clinical director of La Luna Center, an intensive outpatient center for eating disorders that embraces feminine and holistic integrative approaches to healing in the Northern Colorado branch. At La Luna Center, she designed the treatment program, built ACT groups, supervised doctoral students in ACT, and more. With motherhood beginning, Dr. Hill left Colorado and moved back to Santa Barbara to start a private therapy and consulting practice, raise her kids, and grow their homestead. In an effort to stay connected to the most current psychology research, she started a podcast called Psychologists Off the Clock with her friend and colleague, Dr. Debbie Sorensen, in 2016. Currently, Dr. Hill is the host of Your Life in Process and is the author of the ACT Daily Journal. In this episode, Dr. Hill and I talk about what acceptance and commitment therapy is, what it means to live based off of our values, and how to have psychological flexibility. For more information on Dr. Hill, make sure to check out her website at www.drdianahill.com. Dr. Hill does have an upcoming Cultivate Acceptance and Willingness with ACT event on June 10th, which you can find on her website for more information. If you're interested in learning more about ACT, Dr. Hill also has a Foundations to ACT course available on her website. Her podcast, Your Life in Process, is available wherever you find Care with Korak, so make sure to check that out as well. Follow me on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, at Josh Korak for video clips, podcast previews, and more mental health content. That about does it. Let's not waste any more time and get into it. This is Care with Korak with Dr. Diana Hill.
appreciate Dr. Hill. Thanks for coming on Care with Korak. <laughs> Thank you for having me here. It's wonderful to be here. We were just chatting about how yeah. much I love Colorado. So I love to talk with somebody in Colorado. It makes me feel a little bit at home. My second home. Yeah, a little grounded. Yeah. yeah. Because how, I mean, did you say how long you spent out here? We were there for 10 years. I was there for graduate school. I left for my internship. So with a um, doctorate, you have to go do a year-long clinical internship somewhere. And I I did that at UC Davis. But then we got jobs. Uh, My husband was at CU, and I was um, in northern Colorado. And I ended up running a treatment center, clinical director of an eating disorder treatment center up there. So I just love Colorado. It it feels like a second home to Yeah. Well, Colorado's pretty great. California's okay, I guess, but I'm a little I'm a little biased. I've been born and raised here, never left, so I'm a little bit biased. But yeah. um, well, cool. Well, I'm so glad to have you on. Um, would you mind just kind of introducing yourself, sharing a little bit about what you do, um, where you came from, how you got to where you're at, kind of all that good stuff? Well, gosh, that could be a, a few hours conversation there, but I'll give you the brief <laughs> um, bit, which is I'm, I'm a clinical psychologist, and I guess I like to see myself as a psychological flexibility guide. And what that means mm-hmm. is I help individuals, organizations, groups, uh, therapists, consult therapists to live more flexibly in their lives, like how to stay grounded, how to stay open, and how to stay engaged with your values even in the face of obstacles and uncertainty and change. And those tools have been uh, incredibly important over the last few years, uh, whether you're a parent or whether you're a healthcare worker or just someone trying to navigate uh, a pandemic and global uncertainty. So um, right. I've been quite busy. And um, and part of that is also my own uh, psychological flexibility in my life. So I'm a mom of two, mm. I'm a partner, and um, just trying to make it in this world in, in the best way that I can in a compassionate way. Yeah, that's great. So a little bit about, you know, experience wise, what are some of the specialties that you kind of work with? Well, my background, my my initial interest was in biopsychology and also I did my biopsychology degree at UCSB. Uh, so really always interested in, in the um, the brain and its influence on behavior and our biology. But I ended up uh, researching eating disorders and that was mm-hmm. uh you know, very much because of my own history of recovery from an eating disorder. I had anorexia when I was a teenager and into college, and it really shaped and influenced my life and my career and my decision to want to go on to help folks that were struggling with eating disorders. And at the time, you know, when I entered into my PhD program, there was very little uh, research in the arena of mindfulness and acceptance-based approaches to eating disorders. This was back in 2002. Mm. There was probably just uh, maybe like one study on mindfulness and eating disorders, just a handful of studies looking at DBT, dialectical behavior therapy. Right. And so when I actually went to graduate school, I was studying appetite awareness training. So how to make contact, wow. your interceptive awareness, how to make contact with your mm. body to help guide your eating. And it was really just a launching point for me because it led down this path of how to integrate more mindfulness, body-based and acceptance-based approaches to recovery. Hmm. 
Yeah, that's so cool. I mean, you know, a lot of what I'm hearing is very similar to some of the work I do. I do a lot of work with trauma. Yeah. And so I do a lot of interoceptive, a lot of mindfulness-based work around there. Um, so it's interesting for me to kind of think about this through an eating disorder or a, a disordered eating. Um, what What is the right – is there a right way to kind of talk about and label those things? In terms of labeling – an eating disorder? Eating disorders, disordered eating. Oh, I don't know the... if there's like one. Oh, gosh. <laughs> you know, labels, words can be uh, problematic whichever way you turn, you know? Right, I think, right. I think culturally we have, um, whether you are diagnosed with an eating disorder or body dysmorphia or whatever the DSM wants mm -hmm. to put you, box he wants to put you in, I think that many of us are very disconnected from our bodies. And right. uh, so that can show up in the form of an eating disorder, but I think it can also just show up in the form of when you're in an intimate relationship and you're so much in your head, you can, you have lost track of what's happening in your body or even your intuition or your, you know, sort of mm -hmm. inner knowing. And many times I'll work with clients and just sort of say, like, how much of your day are you spent in your head versus how much of your day you're spent in your body? And for, for most of us, our mm -hmm. body can be a very foreign thing. So... Eating disorders was where I started, and that's because, in part, because of my my own history and my own desire to right. help people. But it's really evolved over time. Where now I'm working with folks um, in a, you know, sort of this psychological flexibility or ACT model to help people identify what their values are and and how to live their life in alignment with those values. And oftentimes that involves some kind of check in with your body, like. Hmm. What, what are my values? What, what do I kind of know inside of me that's not a should or an expectation or an external rule or what my head is telling me? But I know from more of an inner awareness and more of a heart space of what's right for me and what I want my life to be about. And that can look like, you know, checking in with yourself if you have an addiction or if you have an eating disorder or if you're just trying to navigate being a human on this planet. Right. Yeah. How often are you finding when you're working with clients that there is this large disconnection between body and mind and spirit? All the time. I mean, I think yeah. you know, I struggle with it and I've been practicing yoga for over 20 years and, you know, mm -hmm. um, you know, there'll be times where I have completely disconnected from my body. So I think it's, it's quite common. And, and part of the reason why is, you know, obviously there's social cultural influences that, pull us out of our body. So a lot of things are designed to take our attention away from our inner world, whether that's, um, you know, diets, you know, take our attention away from our hunger and fullness, or whether it's things like our technology, right, that, that takes us away mm -hmm. from being, you know, in our bodies. But there's also another element to the body, which I think is interesting, which is we often find it quite uncomfortable and foreign and sort of this like wilderness of whether that's our emotions inside of our body can feel really scary yeah. to folks or physical sensations. And what's interesting is that a lot of the research around everything from chronic pain to how to deal with things like trauma has to do now with how do we approach and be with whatever's showing up under our skin. And that is a mm. skill set that many of us don't have because we spend a lot of times trying to run away from what's showing up inside of us. Mm, yeah. Why, why is that? Like, you know, over the years that you've worked in this kind of area, what have you found in terms of why do we feel so uncomfortable in our body? Like what are some of those factors that may play a role into 
just that body discomfort that a lot of us have. You know, there's, um, there's a psychiatrist at Stanford, Anna Lemke, who uh, mm. she wrote the book Dopamine Nation, and I, I got the um, opportunity to interview her uh, on my podcast. And she described something that I hadn't heard of it this way, which was really helpful to me, was um, sort of the concept of nature, nurture, and neighborhood. Right. So nature, nurture, neighborhood. Yeah. So, so nature being our biology and our brains right. and, and biology are designed to avoid discomfort and pain. It's, it's, we, we are, we are the ancestors of the folks that were really good at like running when something was painful and finding safety. <laughs> right. And so right. when it comes to physical pain, it makes a lot of sense to avoid things, acute pain, mm. you know, and then nurture has to do with what we were taught, you know, about our bodies, about emotions, what was sort of what culturally, you know, I identify as a woman in uh, Western society. Women are often culturally taught from a very young age that things like anger are not things to be expressed and really not something that I should feel, right? I have mm, two young yeah. boys and, um, you know, one of them, is nine. And so here, here are two boys. My, my husband has his PhD in education and his specialty is in, um, uh, diversity and in, in, in inclusion in, in education and math. Right. And then wow. mom is the psychologist that like works with feelings. Right. So you can imagine what my two boys, <laughs> my two boys are like finger knitting and you know, they're like sure. super not genderized, but they're on baseball teams. <laughs> and last um, a couple weekends ago, I was at a, a baseball game and my nine-year-old didn't run when his coach told him to run from one base to the next, right? And mm -hmm. uh, he ended up getting getting out because he kind of like halfway ran and didn't really finish up. And the, the coach gave him a talking to between innings and he went back to the dugout and I was looking, you know, I'm like the mom looking in in the dugout. How's my little boy doing? My little nine-year-old kid. And I could just see him holding back his tears so intensely. Like he was like wow. racing his body, holding his breath. Like his eyes were like, mm. you know, staring straight ahead. Like, please do not let me cry right now. Right. Right. So if you're a boy or if you identify as a boy or someone identifies you as a boy, they're going to tell you don't cry. Right. So that's the neighborhood. Right. Like what's happening in our, in our neighborhood. I'm sorry, our, our nurture, mm. what's happening in our nurturing environments around um, right. our emotions. And then neighborhood is sort of what we have access to in terms of um, what's available to us um, mm. to be able to deal with our emotions, our coping skills, our um, ways in which we can express. And so in all of those, really, I think, in our, in, at least in, you know, Western culture, um, there is an emphasis on control emotions. Certain things are good to show, other things are not. And um, get rid of them, really, if you can. Mm, yeah. Oh, yeah, sorry. It, Long story. I didn't mean to interrupt. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that was great. That was perfect. I mean, um, it, it makes sense to me, right? I mean, the you know, for so long, it's been such a conversation around, is it nature or is it nurture? And, and really it's both. Right. Um, and I love that idea of this neighborhood, right. Of what's available to us. Um, and, and for some people, there isn't a lot, right. I mean, I know at least for my clients coming in, which I know I'm still pretty early on in my career, but, um, and I'm sure this is the same for you, but so many of my clients who are coming in have 
next to nothing in terms of coping skills, right? They don't know how to manage their, their feelings. They don't know how to manage the discomfort in their body. They don't know how to deal with any of that. So what are kind of the next steps? They're coming in for, to see you. They have all this baggage, right? Where do you start to take them? Well, in a um, ACT model, except as a commitment therapy, one of the things that we start with is something called creative hopelessness. And mm. gosh, you know, you'd think that's sort of a terrible thing for your therapist to say is that we're hopeless. <laughs> um, but creative hopelessness is the idea that what you've been doing to get you here, some of the things have been really effective and wonderful and you're flourishing in your life, but some things are really kind of hopeless. Things like trying mm. to control your emotions and make them go away. We have plenty of research to show that emotional suppression leads to stronger emotions. Things like trying to control right. your thoughts and not think about a thought. That's like my most frequent request from from, from clients is, can you just help me stop thinking about my ex? <laughs> can you just help me <laughs> right. stop thinking yeah. about my belly? Can you just help me stop thinking about how much I want to, mm. you know, like use right now? No, actually I can't. Mm -hmm. I'm not that kind of therapist. Um, you can probably get something to help you stop thinking, but unfortunately it's going to stop some other things that you care about <laughs> like right. living. Um, so one mm -hmm. thing that I start with is just looking at the workability and, and, and helping people identify the ways in which they're operating in their lives that is no longer working. And then from there, we have a launching point of some, some alternative paths. And those alternative paths are things that at times can feel very paradoxical. So for example, if you're, if someone's coming in, that's highly anxious, mm -hmm. anxiety tells you to avoid, but the way out of anxiety is actually to go towards the very thing that you're afraid of. So that's right. an alternative path. It's like uses things like acceptance and allowing and being present mm -hmm. with some of those core processes that we know are involved in human flourishing. Those that can practice acceptance and being present and mindful with discomfort are actually more resilient, right? So mm -hmm. with anxiety, we may approach, we may try an alternative path with something like depression because what does depression tell you to do? Isolate, crawl back in bed, maybe drink a few, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, right. and, and right. those very things are the things that make depression worse. So I may work with someone that's very depressed to look at biopsychospiritual models to help them get some behavioral activation in their life. Mm -hmm. And ultimately the work that I do with clients is about values and it's about what would be a rich and meaningful and fulfilling life to you. What does that look like? And then how can we act on those values? How can we take committed action towards those right here, mm -hmm. right now today so that we are putting those little drops in a bucket to eventually sort of build that life that you want to live. Right. Right. I love how much uh, ACT focuses on values. I, I'm, I'm still learning a lot about it. I haven't, I wouldn't say that I'm like actively practicing uh, acceptance and commitment therapy, but um, I will say that almost with, with almost all of my clients, or if I haven't done it yet, I know I will be doing it. I love doing the value card sort um, and having them kind of discover their own values and like what, what that looks like for them. And it's fun for me because it's always different. Right. Um, but then we, we kind of narrow down like what's their top five values. And I don't know if this is similar to what you do with your clients, but, um, and then I always check in, I say, okay, so how are we, how are your values being met? Right. How are those values being filled in your life? Um, and then how are they not? 
right? Where do you feel like life is just missing, right? With some of these values that you've identified are some of the most important things to you. Um, how does that, or I guess, um, where do you, where do you take that forward in terms of once you've identified values with your clients, how do you take that and run with it? Yeah. You know, I think values card sorts are really fun to do, especially Mm -hmm. with clients that um, need to have a word to put on a value. So they need to have words like Mm. creativity or kindness or, um, engagement or adventure, right? Those are values. And, and where I see though, I see those as a launching point because what I see values as is something that you embody and you live out. So say, for example, you really value, um, being present. That's like something you value. I read, I was reading through your website. I was like, oh, he's like a Thich Nhat Hanh guy. I can like hang with him. I love Thich Nhat Hanh. <laughs> yep. I studied, yep. I went to Plum Village in my twenties. I grew up with Thich Nhat Hanh. My dad oh, wow. was like yeah. a super follower. So he'd go to Plum Village every, um, summer and actually we're bringing our kids there. I was wondering, I mean, yeah. you can't not be into mindfulness and not love. Not love not. On. Okay. <laughs> so, so you love being present, right? And, and mm-hmm. that's something you value. Then the next question is, okay, so how are you embodying that in mm-hmm. our interview right now? Like if I were to video, well, you are videotaping this, people will watch this <laughs> and people were to Hopefully. say, okay, he's a super present interviewer what would be the qualities that you would be acting on? Like, how would that look? Right. So, or if you, if you were Mm. videoing someone that was, um, in a, in a partnership or a friendship or, um, at work, what would that being present look like? Because for me, values don't end at the word. They, that's where it starts. And sometimes Mm. we can't even put a word on it. Like I can't even put a word on the value of what it feels like when I'm engaging, um, with my mom and I'm like, actually like listening to her and not judging her and mm. I'm not criticizing her and I'm just appreciating her. It's like a lot of words, right? But I can feel the feeling right. of what it's like and how I'm acting. And what's interesting mm. about values and, and the reason why it's so fun to be a therapist is because oftentimes what's most painful to us is what points to our values. So when somebody's mm. coming into therapy, there's something that they care about that brought them there. There's a value. There's a way in which they're living in the world that is maybe discrepant from how they want to be in the world. And that pain, that discomfort, that loss is contributing to their dissatisfaction in life. And when we have that understanding of like, oh, okay, wait a minute. What bothers me most is often linked to my values then we actually have something to work Mm. with there because we can harness and harvest the values and start using those to act on instead of getting stuck in the bother. Stuck in the bother. Yes. In the pain. Interesting. I like that. So it's a way of, um, and, and, and the flip side of that is I'll also, you know, when I train, I work a lot with training therapists and act, it's like sort of Mm -hmm. semi of my many side hustles and what I love to do is I'll like put therapists into pairs and I'll give them this exercise. And you could actually even do this with partners too, or friends is I'll give, I'll tell one therapist, okay, so your job is to describe to the other therapist, a moment from yesterday that was the most meaningful moment of the day. Even if the listeners think about Mm. this, like what was the most meaningful moment of the day? Josh, what was the most meaningful moment of yesterday for you? The most meaningful moment of yesterday. Um, 
Jeez, now I'm trying to remember yesterday, right? Um, I would probably say – well, okay. So I would say I, I, I had a client yesterday um, who I just started to re- re-see. Um, like she had stopped for a while and then has come back. And so um, we were finishing up an intake appointment and uh, just tears coming down, right, talking about a lot of trauma, talking a lot about – um, family dysfunction, different things like that. And so just, just being in that moment and being able to sit with that and just, um, you know, just appreciating my role in that space and, and being able to honor that, um, was, it was really meaningful yeah. just to be there and to be a part of that. Yeah. So super precious. That was probably yeah. the most meaningful. Yeah. Very precious yesterday. that we get to share in those moments with our clients. And so, so in this exercise, you know, you'll, you'll ask one therapist to describe the most meaningful no- moment. And then the other therapist's job, that would be my job as I'm listening to you, is to be a values highlighter and to look for, mm. as somebody's talking about something that's meaningful to them, be, be able to look for what, what it is that they care about, what are their values. And even you just sharing that, that story, Josh, I get a sense, I get a hit of what's important to you. And so my hit is you value vulnerability Mm. and maybe you also value being present with somebody while they're vulnerable. You you Mm -hmm. value presence. And once we can kind of boil it down to like, okay, so Josh, you value vulnerability and you value being present with somebody when they're vulnerable. The next question is when, and you could do this in therapy or maybe outside of your Mm -hmm. life, when is it hard for you to be present? with vulnerability, Josh, <laughs> hmm. where in your life is it I, hard to do that? Cause I imagine you can do it with that client, but maybe there's some other hiding <laughs> holes of you that it's like, that's hard. You know, maybe it's with, oh, yeah. Sure. yeah, yeah. You don't have to oh, share, I, but you I can. can speak to that. <laughs> no, I'd, I'd love to share. Um, oh gosh. Now I feel like I'm in a session right now. Uh, Go for um, it. <laughs> Um, no, honestly, yeah. I mean, it, it is a lot easier for me to be present in vulnerability when I'm with clients, um, but a lot, a lot more difficult. It takes a lot more mindfulness. It takes a lot more um, personal work for me to do the same thing when it comes to being in relationship with people who are close to me, whether that's you know my girlfriend, whether that's my family, um, close friends. Uh, being present with my own vulnerability. Um, it's, it's okay when it's their vulnerability, I think. Uh, but with my own vulnerability, that becomes a lot more difficult. <laughs> right. Good. Yeah. So that's, then we'd find if you were my client, which you're not, so I won't take it that far, Right. but then we'd find like, okay. okay, so here's this thing that you value so much. And then here's these places in your life where it's hard to bring that value to life. And what's cool about ACT or um, this psychological flexibility approach is, okay, so now we found, you know, sort of this spot. Josh has a hard time being present with vulnerability in himself. And there's these other core processes that can help with that. So in ACT, there's mm. these six core processes that make up your psychological flexibility. And, and this is when, it, when Debbie Sorensen and I wrote the ACT Daily Journal, we broke it down like process by process. Values is one of them, but there's another process mm. that may be helpful, which is acceptance. And acceptance is how, how, do we, how do we stay with the discomfort that shows up under our skin, in our bodies, that, that we want to shut down around when we're pursuing our values. Because what's interesting mm. is that the more that, that, that you care about something, 
the more likely you're going to experience this discomfort and just the vulnerability of being human, right? So if you go bowling, you don't care if you lose, if you lose or look like an idiot. Most people, unless you're like a bowling star. <laughs> Right. But you care a lot in other situations, right, of, of, of like of this mm. kind of performance. So so we'd move through some of these other processes, which are things like acceptance. Um, there's another process that involves how do we work with our thoughts that give us a hard time when we're trying to pursue, you know, for you being vulnerable with, with, with yourself, being present with yourself when you're vulnerable, because there's probably a lot of right. thoughts involved. And there's a whole skill set around that called cognitive diffusion. So that's mm, where mm -hmm. psychological flexibility can be really helpful in, in helping people identify their values. But then actually what I'm interested in is, okay, now you know what they are. What are you going to do? Mm, that's great. I, it seems like you've really just honed down and you've just made this um, such an integral part of your therapy and your work with clients. I, I love it. It's so cool. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I've been living that's and breathing great. it for a long time. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, been, no, that's but, great. You know, what's interesting is that it's also, it kind of evolves. You evolve as a therapist mm -hmm. over time. And um, I think that I've evolved as a therapist from in my early days, just being super theoretical and super mm -hmm. into like wanting to understand the models and the theory and the research. And these days I am just like so applied. So like mm. what works in your life right now, get flexible, get out of the like diagnostic categories and the worksheets and the handouts and the right. exercises and just like live it with help people live mm. this um, and, and be able to tailor it to their unique context and circumstances because every single person is so different. They have so many different things that are influencing their struggles and their successes in mm. life. And we as therapists are all so different and we all have our own skill sets that are, that are different. So we have to kind of embrace right. and um, support all of that diversity really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. And I mean, it, it sounds like, you know, this is a huge part of your therapy, but it's not the only part, right? It's, you are a diverse therapist and could you s just spend a little bit of time maybe talking about how you incorporate yoga into therapy? Yeah. You know, Yoga is sort of an interesting um, story for me in that I yoga was a really integral part of my recovery. And before I went to graduate school, um, I was studying a lot of yoga. It was very much part of my healing journey. And then when I got to graduate school, I was in this really intense PhD program. And the way that these PhD programs work is it's like you with six other crazy, smart, competitive in my case, women, which is the majority of psychology graduate programs these days, a lot of women. And um, mm -hmm. my first year of graduate school, so I was in this like competitive, competitive prestigious program and uh, very cognitively behaviorally based. And I um, started to, to relapse. So here mm -hmm. I was studying eating disorders, relapsing. Mm -hmm. And I had made a commitment before I went to graduate school to two things. Um, the first commitment was my recovery comes first. Um, mm -hmm. And the second commitment was my, my, my purpose here is to serve. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't fulfilling either 
of those commitments, or maybe in some ways I fulfilled those commitments because I withdrew. And so, you know, to get into these PhD programs, you're like, it's like the top 1% that gets into these things. And, you know, it's just like right. this hugely prestigious, you work your behind off to get there. And I especially was, C Boulder. Yeah, right? C. I mean, Boulder. That is a, that's a top notch school for, especially for psychology. I mean, they're just so well known for the research and, and uh, clinical psychology. Yeah. So, yeah, I remember the day calling my advisor. And um, mm -hmm. telling her, I have, to, I have to stop. I have to leave. Mm -hmm. And so I had the benefit of going to graduate school in CU Boulder, CU Boulder, which also top graduate school in psychology, but like Mecca for spiritual <laughs> enlightenment. And so yep. I, went, um, I went up to the El Dorado Mountain School of Yoga, ashram there oh, in okay. South Boulder. And um, I spent a, um, you know, that year living and learning from the ashram, something that I, that I already knew that I needed, right. Which was, I need to get back in my body and I need to understand mm -hmm. the role of, um, these really biopsycho spiritual, it's all of it, social biopsychosocial spiritual. Right. And, um, mm -hmm. and so so that really has influenced my work in, in that when when I think about yoga, I, I don't think about it just as the asanas of, of the physical postures, because actually much of my, my study mm -hmm. wasn't a physical one at all. It was very much the psychology of yoga and the practices of non-attachment, um, the practices mm -hmm. of um, ahimsa, not harming, the yamas and the niyamas, which are the ethical principles of yoga that teach us things like how to balance, um, you know, discipline, like this, the importance of discipline, um, but it being a compassionate discipline, right? Um, so in, in a lot of ways, that um, really melds beautifully with ACT because ACT has a lot of sort of, um, uh, it has a lot of contemplative um, it sort of aligns with a lot of contemplative practice, but what it will look like in my in my session can be very different for every single client. It may be something where I'm working with someone um, that ha with breath work. I, I, I would mm. actually teach different forms of, of breath work, things like alternate nostril breathing, um, things like breath retention to actually help us um, with our um, vagus nerve, with our nervous system, mm -hmm. um, to help us soothe our bodies. Um, but it, for other clients, if I were to ask them to do some breath work with me, like I work with executives and I'm here in Santa Barbara, so it's like producers and you know, like sure. famous, lots of famous people that I don't even know who they are because I don't Google my clients, but then they have to tell me a few sessions in. I'm like, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> oh, but, that's pretty fun, yeah, it's though. pretty funny. But, but <laughs> with them, I'm not, you know, with some folks, I would never throw breath work at them, but I'm just helping them to start to notice their feet on the floor and the seat in the chair and um, that there is something below the neck. <laughs> and that mm. in some ways is body or I'm working with things um, like around non-attachment to ego, but in a much more... Um, subtle way, not using um, the Sanskrit terms for things like that. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's just, uh, for me, there's just so much to unpack there. I mean, so yoga has just played such a personal, um, like it's been, it's been a tool for you to use in your own personal recovery, your own personal journey and mental health, but also you've taken that and now you're saying, well, this has worked for me. So I, 
it makes sense for me to use it with clients. Yeah, and in my parenting. You know, mm, my kids, yeah. I mentioned I have these two baseball player boys, but ever since they were um, <laughs> little, we've chanted together. And, and p- very much part of my practice is kirtan, mm. which is chanting. And there's a good amount of research now that shows that actually the rhythm of kirtan slows your breath down to that sort of ideal breath state that um, Nestor talks about in the book Breath, where it's like five count in, five count out. A lot of those mantras Mm -hmm. naturally do that, um, which is really great for your your nervous system, your physiology, all those things. But I've been chanting with my boys ever since they're little. And, um, you know, we we sing these chants together. And and during uh, the pandemic, when I homeschooled my kids, I was like, hey, Mama's in charge of curriculum now. <laughs> so yeah. we're going to learn some Here we Sanskrit. Go. <laughs> <laughs> and it was fantastic because now sometimes my 12-year-old, I'll, I'll hear him. You can hear him in the other room and I'll hear him light at mm. night, late at night and he'll be singing a chant when he can't sleep at night to get him to bed. And if any of his kids, any of his wow. friends knew this, oh my goodness, he would be so embarrassed. But um, <laughs> but I know that it's instilled some 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 practices for them, some tools Hmm. for them that I hope they will use lifelong, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just feel like the more, the more I read about these different things that you're talking about, the more, it, it just seems that research is just heading saying, this is where we need to be going in terms of therapy and treatment. Like thinking of the body keeps the score, even with Vander Kolk, mm-hmm. you know, he talks a lot about, um, just a lot of these physical body somatic oriented therapies, whether it's simple things like yoga or, or even massage therapy, right? Um, there's just so much more evidence pointing. We, we need to be doing chanting. We need to be doing these different body-based practices. If we want to see some differences in our anxiety, our stress, our depression, right? Because so much of it, um, does stem from our body, right? The, uh, threat responses that our body can have, um, can really just jack us up. Right. Um, so it's, it's really, really cool to see that you're, you know, applying this to yourself, you're applying this to your clients, you're applying this to your family, and you're just making this such a holistic, um, practice for, for your life. Yes. I think that psychology has done a pretty poor job. Um, and Mm -hmm. no offense to white males, but, um, in part, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no because offense taken, I'll speak for the us. patriarchy <laughs> that has uh, driven psychology for so long, where a lot mm. of um, things, it's been very individualistic in its um, approach. Mm. It has, I mean, I think I went to actually a counseling um, internship, a counseling in a counseling center. And man, I learned a lot about uh, multicultural approaches, about it's not just about the individual and it's the individual's mm-hmm. fault, right? About context and how that influences our mental health and our social relationships and, you know, um, all sorts of environmental factors. But the other um, arena that's really been, I think, discounted and not paid attention to is the role of the body in our mental health. Everything from you know, I, I'll work with a client who's like depressed and anxious and, you know, you know, I'm working on like, let's cognitively diffuse that thought. Let's, you know, whatever, let's practice this breathing exercise. And they'll come back to my session one day and they'll say things like, I just feel so much better. I am just like doing great. And I'll be like, what do you think is hmm. contributing to that? You know, what, what which ones? Right. Are and they'll say things like, well, I started pickleball twice a week with this group of friends. <laughs> 
which is great. And it changed my life. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, because we know that physical mm. exercise and social connection is foundational in, in your mood, in, in changing how you right. feel. And, and, you know, we just have negated these things or things like your microbiome mm-hmm. in terms of your anxiety and the link between diversity of the microbiome and um, your anxiety or your mental health that we're only at the mm-hmm. sort of the edges of, of understanding research wise. But right. I do think the research is heading in that direction and taking a much more holistic, mm-hmm. integrative view of things. But it makes people feel a little bit uncomfortable because many of these things oh, yeah. people have discounted or thought is kind of like woo-woo. <laughs> yeah. No, you're 100% right. You know, um, I, that's that's something I'm having to – I'm starting to more regularly check in with my clients about is just um, the social social connections. Like I'm really glad you brought that piece up. Um, you know, research has shown that – one of the biggest um, factors that leads to post-traumatic growth is our re-engagement in social relationships. Uh, and so, you know, just the other day, I, I checked in with a client who I hadn't seen in like a week or two. And I was like, so, you know, how's it been going, friends? Have you guys hung out recently? Like, what have you guys been up to? And he's kind of just like, why are you Why are you asking me that? He, It felt like an uncomfortable question for him. And for me, it was like, well, let's just check in about friends. But for him, it was just, it was kind of uncomfortable. Um, and so it's it's interesting as as the counselor, like how many clients sometimes don't even think about, you know, their social life and how important of a role that can play in their mental health. Yeah. You know, I, I've been keeping tabs on the APA Stress in America survey. It's a survey that mm-hmm. the APA did yearly for a long time, but then come 2020, they started doing it monthly and, oh, really? and starting to look at all these different variables um, that are contributing to our stress. So things that you would predict, like in, I think it was June of 2020, 72% of Americans said this is the worst point in history that they could ever remember. Yeah, pretty much. Wow. Summer 2020 yeah. just like was Makes sense. pretty bottomed out for folks. Um, but there was yeah. other um, things that were coming out from that survey that were interesting. And um, things like four out of five parents reported that they were grateful for time with their kids. Three out of five mm. Americans were reporting that they were taking action against racism and social justice, right? So at these really, really low points of our life, we're doing some things that, and those are social things, right? Mm-hmm. That are meaningful and engaged in a sense of purpose, in a sense of greater purpose, a sense of compassion, a sense of connection that actually can help us navigate the lowest of lows. And it's, hmm. it's often we don't, we don't think about the, the power of that, like the, the power yeah. of finding meaningful engagement and especially meaningful engagement that's connected to, to someone else. And even the power hmm. of if you are super depressed and down, doing something for someone else and how that can make you feel so different. I mean, we know this as therapists. I can be having the crappiest morning of my life and then go into a session with a client and feel alive and invigorated just from an hour mm. of caring for another person. But we also yeah. know that in terms of the research on volunteer work and its benefit for mental health and you know, you know, all sorts of things. So yeah, social mm. engagement is really, really important. Yeah, 
Well said. You know, it, it makes me wonder, like, I my last season I had um, Dr. Sally Spencer Thomas, who does a lot of work around suicide risk um, and suicide loss survivors. Um, and she <clears throat> informed us that, uh, which was kind of surprised to me, that the suicide rates did not dramatically increase. They didn't increase at all. Uh, they kind of they didn't they didn't decrease per se too much, but they they kind of just stayed the same throughout COVID, uh, which was really interesting to me and, and to my audience because and it it makes me wonder if um, how much of a role social connections play in that with the uh, grouping together during COVID and being around family and friends hopefully a little bit more throughout this time. Yeah, you know, and I'd want to look at moderating variables too. So mm -hmm. moderating variables being variables that um, impact that relationship, because what some of the, the studies are showing around mental health is that there are variables that show that time during COVID was not the same for everybody, <laughs> you know? So right. uh, Generation Zers, oh man, they got hurt hit the worst like generation right. z their mental health and actually the the latest march 2022 survey that came out they were looking at race as well as gender as well as um uh, generation and it's actually in terms of the stress on americans on um, the, the the baby boomers and the older adults are faring pretty well <laughs> interesting and, and, and part yeah. of that is you know maybe they weren't they they're not facing the same kind of like immensity of what what is happening to our future, um, what you know what mm. what's the future of our planet what's the future of our um, you know economy and now you know global instability that generations years generation Xers and millennials are really are kind of left with this responsibility. And right. so it's stressful, it's hard. And I, you know, and then we know that certain, that also um, people of color, people with lower um, economic resources, healthcare workers and parents fared really poorly. There, there was a, some behaviors that they were looking at increase in alcohol use. And it was something mm. like a quarter of um, Americans reported using more alcohol but 50% of parents reported using more alcohol during the pandemic. You know, because oh, I believe it's it. like, how, yeah. you know, how are you gonna get through that rest of the end of your day when you've been with your kids all day and working? So mm -hmm. it's just, we gotta look at moderating variables with all of this in terms of, um, you know, what's impacting who and how and context really matters. Right, right. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's a good point. You know, it, it is going to just differ based on where you're at. And, and like you said, those different factors around race and uh, culture and gender and, and those different things. And, and even just age, like you were saying, you know, I, I, I think what I'm seeing has been getting hit the most in terms of the social relationship aspect is our youngest generations, right? When they're being pulled out of school, as long as they did and having to do online for so long, um, you know, I'm seeing clients now, you know, two years, you know, I, not post COVID, but two years through this process of COVID and, and they're hurting. They're, you know, they don't have the same social relationships that I did when I was in school that you probably did, uh, I'm assuming in, in school. And, um, and it's because, uh, they, they were isolated, you know, they were able to maybe see them online, but it's, it's just not the same as those in-person relationships that are so instrumental when you're younger. Yeah, you know, what we're gonna see is these sort of like unusual outgrowths of, of really beautiful things 
really unexpected mm-hmm. beautiful things and then really unexpected tragic things. So, mm-hmm. you know, yesterday I was I had a full day of clients. My kids were home because it was like in-service day. My partner was at work. I work um this little office is on our property and I started seeing folks out of this office during COVID. I love it. It's got such a nice aesthetic. <laughs> <laughs> it's like this little redwood building in the forest. Yeah. But so my kids were home all day and um I go up like halfway through the day to, to like see how see what's happening up there. And my twelve year old is making challah bread. I'm not kidding you. <laughs> he and this is no way. this is a this is a COVID outgrowth, right? Is all of a sudden <laughs> you have to figure out how to cook kid because you're home three meals a day and mom is not I'm working right. and I cannot cook three meals. I'll I'll cook you dinner and I'll maybe do some leftovers and a lunch for breakfast. So he's making some yeah. challah. So he's making some challah. <laughs> and um, you know, he get he gets little consults and we're bid I'm a bid big cook and baker and all that. So they've been you know, baking sure. bread with me since we were little. But these are the types of outgrowths that um, that we're going to see, these unusual sort of strengths that, that we developed, that our children developed, that um, these strengthening of relationships that we didn't expect. I and mean, you're talking about post-traumatic growth, all of those, you know, things like appreciation for yeah. life and deepening of connections and spirituality. Um, and yes, yeah, superimposed on some real deficits. Like I was responsible for my second grader learning how to read and write. And let me tell you, he's going to have like poor penmanship for life. <laughs> he's done for. <laughs> he, he, he cannot read his writing because mom does not know how to teach oh, wow. handwriting. But, but sure. you know, they can make some holla. So I would rather have someone know how to make holla in the long run. <laughs> Well, they're probably going to be way better off in terms of self-regulation and all that good stuff that you've taught them. But that, to me, that is, I I grew up Jewish, actually. And so I, to me, that is the funniest thing. Um, It's the best kind of bread. Best kind of bread around. Um, Yeah, that's, that's great. What are some, if you, if you'd be willing to share, what are some like practical, just a couple of practical coping skills maybe that you'd be willing to share that you work on with clients or that you use yourself in your daily life that kind of center around this idea of psychological flexibility? You know, the skill that I use the most and that I teach the most to therapists and to clients and to my kids is um, something called one eye in and one eye out. And you can do it with your eyes open. So you can do this at the grocery store. You can do it while Mm -hmm. you're sitting, you know, next to someone you love or when you're sitting next to someone you're in a fight with. And you start Mm -hmm. with two eyes in. So two eyes in is like, what's going on in my body right now? What's my inner landscape? What's my breath like? Where are there areas of tension? What emotions are showing up for me right now? Am I hungry? What are my biological needs? Two eyes in. Mm -hmm. And okay. then you, you shift to, to two eyes out, which is, can I acknowledge the, the, the person that's with me? Can I see them as a human with their own inner landscape and inner world and context that's happening for them? But can I also do some two eyes out, you know, looking at the horizon activates parts of our brain that are associated with um, being more interconnected. Really? Evolutionarily, we look at the horizon. You know, to see what's out there, where, where are we going to go? What, what, are, what are we connected to, right? So two eyes out to look at nature, two eyes out to just look at the world around you. And then ultimately, can I toggle back and forth with one eye in and one eye out? Can I stay connected to me 
and what's happening mm. inside of me, make room and space for my full experience, tend to things when they need to be tended to, make space for things when they need space to be made. And then can I have another eye out that's connected to the world around me, including people that I'm with, and tend to the things that need to be tended to, make space for things that need space for, and maybe appreciate both. Hmm. I love that. That's great. That makes me think of, you know, going back to our boy Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, I just read his uh, The Miracle of Mindfulness, and it makes me think of that story he shares. I don't know if you've read it, but it's the um, the story, uh, I don't I don't know if it has a specific name. It's not even his story. It's a story by uh, Tolsky, maybe? Um, but it's, it's the story of the uh, emperor who goes up to the wise man in the mountains and talks about uh, how he's how he's going up there to get the answer to three questions, right? Um, what's the most important way for us to spend our time? Like, who's the most important people for us to be around? And what's the most important thing for us to be doing? Or some, something to that effect. And um, it's this whole long story, but basically kind of boils down to this idea of mindfulness, right? Where you're at right now is like the most important time. Who you're with right now is the most important person you should be with. And what you're doing with them is what is the most important thing to be doing. Yeah. Um, so what you're sharing just makes me think a lot about that. Like we're, we're being mindful of what's going on with ourselves internally, our needs, our desires, while also being able to recognize what's in front of us and being present in that space. Yeah. You know, Ty, I had the, I mentioned I had the opportunity to study with him in my twenties and my mom mm -hmm. and my now husband and I went to Plum Village together and he would give these Dharma talks. Um, he was like back in the day where he, he just, he just wasn't it just wasn't popular, you know, but he'd give these Dharma talks and he'd always have a cup of a pot of tea with him mm -hmm. during the talk. And, um, he would be talking and then he would stop. It was like, everything would stop and he'd pour the little cup of tea and then he'd lift it up. He'd take a sip. He'd finish drinking it. We'd all be just watching him, like just hanging, watching him <laughs> drink his tea right. his sip, and then put it down. And then he'd start the talk again. And it was it it was hmm. that he would not drink the tea while talking because he, he, he wanted to pay attention to the tea and he wanted to pay attention to the talk. Right. And so everything that he did, all these subtle things, everything from when he rang the bell, he would do something called warming up the bell where he'd take his little thing and he'd touch it gently just to let the bell know, I'm going to ring you now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to startle you. Bell. Oh my goodness. And so he'd, yeah. he'd warm it up and he would teach us, you must warm up the bell before you ring the bell, you know? Mm. And so now whenever I ring my bell, like before meditation, I'm like, I, I better warm it up. <laughs> you got to warm up the bell. But we got to think about that for ourselves, right? That, that we, we've mm. lost the subtlety of things, like how we don't warm ourselves up, right? To all sorts mm. of things in life that, or don't, we don't warm each other up. We just like put the big like conflictual issue on the table with our partner when they walk in the door from work and they're like, there was no warming up there. Of course, they're going to not respond well to this. So these right. teachings of mindfulness are, are quite simple, but um, when you look at them deeply, they, they are profound. They, they yeah. will profoundly change your life. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it really is such a buzzword right now. I feel like in, in, pop culture, like, oh, just practice mindfulness, just do this, right? But when you actually do it, when you actually practice it and you practice it 
um, with how it's intended to be practiced, it's it's profound. Like you said, it's it's changing. It'll make an impact. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, great. I mean, so what's next for you? What are you working on? I'm, I'm curious, you know, you've got so much that you've done, so much that you're doing. What What are you working on right now? Mm, I'm working on scaling back and resting more. Yeah. Um, so I've Good. been doing this podcast. I mentioned I, I left a really big podcast that got too big and I'm like, it's too big. I want things to be small. Um, so mm. I, I have this podcast, Your Life in Process, that is super applied and it, it's super meaningful to me because I, I just want to, I want to like be of service. Um, going back to those two commitments of graduate school, I, those are at the yeah. forefront of my mind. Um, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm also interested in these days a lot more in the concept of striving. And I've been writing a lot on that and, and considering writing a book about striving and how to, be a high achiever and engaged, um, which is ever like my struggle in life is like how to pursue big things that I care about without falling apart. <laughs> yeah. This is ever my struggle. So, um, so I think that ACT can help a lot with that, with high achievers, with strivers, whether you're a striving parent or a striving graduate student or a, um, mm -hmm. you know, whatever striver in the world of social justice that, that, um, how do we practice that psychological, um, flexibility in the, that arena. Yeah. And so, um, I'm just thinking about that. I'm contemplating it and how to, yeah. how to write a book about striving without striving. <laughs> oh, that'd be great. I know that I would definitely devour that kind of book. I know I could probably use a little bit more insight there. So that's great. Well, I'm, I'm you know, I'm going to make sure to link your podcast and all of your, your other stuff, your book, your act book and in, in the episode description. And, um, so it's cool to see the work you're doing and, um, I love, I love that you, you, just your heart and all this. I just want to say like, you know, there, there are so many out there, right. Who are just focused maybe more on production and, and getting things out just to get it out. And, and it seems like your heart is really about service. And I think that's so special, right? I think if we had more of that in the world, then, then it would definitely be looking a little different. So, yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you for this opportunity, Josh. Thanks for uh, playing yeah. my client a little bit midway through. That was fun. No, that was that was great. That was different. Uh, that was a lot of fun. So, um, well, I always I always like to you know end it by kind of leaving it open. Is there any kind of last remarks, any last uh, words of wisdom, if you will, that you want to kind of just impart for my audience? Um. I don't know. I mean, I don't know how wise I am at this point in my life, but, um, I guess, I guess the, the takeaway is just really, what are you committed to? What do you mm -hmm. want to commit to? And, um, getting clear on, on what your commitments are and, and they can be personal and chosen and they don't have to be super impressive, but make them meaningful. Well said. Sounds pretty wise to me. So, <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Hill. I really appreciate your time. I know you're busy. And so this was, this was truly a gift. So thank you. Thank you.